Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If we just let our vision of the world go forth and we embrace it entirely and we don't try to piece together clever diplomacy but just wage a total war, our children will sing great songs about us years from now. Richard Pearl, American political advisor, consultant and lobbyist. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 26.8, the first Anglo-Dutch war part 4. In the previous episode we examined the outbreak of the war after years of simmering tensions and a boatload of stressful issues. We examined how the Dutch underpart came to be and why it was so important for Europe, as well as why the English Navigation Act so affected it. We saw the course of the opening stages of the war, how the Dutch were lulled into a state of complacency and utterly smashed in the first serious military contest of the war, the so-called Channel Fight in February 1653. We also examined some central issues for the English, like sovereignty of the seas and their implementation of some seriously significant naval reforms that would stand the test of time. In this episode, sorry to spoil it for you, it only gets worse for the Dutch, as the defeats pile up and despair mounts, How will the Republic cope? Let's find out as we travel to the year 1653, where important domestic alterations have occurred despite the fact that the war raged on in the background. the ongoing war between the English and Dutch occurred historically significant changes in regime for both sides. In the Netherlands, Johan de Witt was elected Grand Pensionary of the States of Holland, a position he was to hold until his death in 1672, reflecting the importance of his posting. Despite only representing one of the provinces as Grand Pensionary, 
so central was Holland that De Witt came to be treated by foreign governments and by the English as the de facto Prime Minister of the Dutch. But England was itself undergoing a transformation. At the high point of the war for the Rump Parliament in April 1653, Oliver Cromwell seized power by dissolving the Rump Parliament in a coup and establishing himself as Lord Protector of the Commonwealth. The Protectorate era had begun. In the meantime, Trump continued to obey his masters and escort the vital merchant fleets from the West Indies, France and Spain that had missed his escort in February that year. Both admirals, Robert Blake and Martin Trump, continued to just miss one another as crucial supplies and monies filtered into the Republic, but on the 12th of June, the two met again in the decisive battle of the war. At a strategic disadvantage, but counting on the inexperience of his English enemies, Trump was nevertheless unable to bring his skills in manoeuvre to bear when the battle did go against him. The English, for their part, were following to the letter the new instructions for ordering the fleet that had been developed after the Channel fight in February 1653, and represented the first step towards transforming the British Navy into the 18th century masterclass it became. Trump was utterly unprepared for what awaited him at this Battle of the Gabbard Bank. His force could not make headway against the English, who had formed into an impenetrable line and fired broadside after broadside at Trump's fleet. Trump's inability to respond in force, the inferiority of his firepower and the outdated tactics that still saw some of his ships rush the English in an attempt to board, meant that he suffered a crushing defeat on this day. The remains of his force limped back home, followed all the way by the English, who hounded them mercilessly. It was the worst Dutch naval disaster in its history at that point, and it utterly shocked the States General back home when they learned of its extent. So crushing had the defeat been that Trump did dare not allow his ships return to port, at home, in case mass desertions occurred. Instead, repairs and refitting were done a few miles out to sea on the half of his force that remained. What followed was the first English blockade of the Netherlands in the war, as one of Blake's subordinates established a permanent presence off the coast of Holland and effectively crippled the Dutch economy for an entire month, not to mention provoking a scare that the English were soon to attempt a naval landing. The presence of the English made it essential that Trump challenge the English again, but he was painfully aware himself that such a political necessity would surely spell the doom of the very remnants of his force. He no longer harboured any illusions about what he would face. The English were stronger, more confident, in a better position and far more technologically prepared for the kind of battle they now totally expected to win. To their credit, the Dutch did not give up. Fortresses were pillaged for guns and the two great ships that were meant to be for Genoa, the only two warships built by the Dutch in 1653, revealingly enough, were pressed into emergency Dutch service. Tromp still hoped for a miracle from abroad, that the Danish may loan the Dutch some of their vessels as per their alliance. Alas, the Danish king asked too high a price, as J.R. Jones in his book The Anglo-Dutch Wars of the 17th Century explains. Quote, The whole idea of hiring between 10 and 16 Danish ships was chimerical. The Danish king demanded compensation if any were lost, and an equivalent number of Dutch ships to protect Copenhagen. How were they even to reach the Texel? Who was to command them? Moreover, Trump rightly stipulated that any ship hired must be good sailors, and these excessively large ships, designed for the Western Baltic, 
were unsuitable for service within the Dutch fleet. They had two great drafts, and would so be unable either to take refuge in the coastal shell waters, or to use the Dutch bases. They proved to be as illusory as a source of new strength as the Miracle mechanical ship, which an eccentric French inventor was about to be commissioned to build in Rotterdam. End quote. Practical and domestic concerns over morale and losses weren't the only issues, though. The Dutch became mightily concerned about what the loss at the Gabbard Bank would do to their prestige abroad, and fundamentally, what it would do to their contracts and the confidence that foreign traders had in them. Would the Amsterdam entrepot trade remain the centrepiece of European and worldwide business? Or would the latest events prove to the customers and dependents of the Dutch that better opportunities were to be found elsewhere? Some speculated within the States General that the English may attempt to position London ahead of Amsterdam in its time of advantage, and steal from them their pride of place atop the economic food chain. These fears were real enough to provoke a diplomatic backlash from the Dutch, as diplomats were sent to their major trading partners across Europe to persuade them that the loss at the Gabbard Bank was less damaging than the English claimed, that the English victory was due more to Dutch bad luck and bad weather than any deep-rooted problems, and that the English themselves had suffered many casualties. If the Dutch Republic's customers could be fooled, then the Dutch public certainly could not. The blockade of the Dutch shores following the naval loss brought the war home, and illustrated just how deeply in trouble the Republic's war effort was. The presence of English ships in view of the populace was an obvious blow to morale domestically, but the possibility that the war would fundamentally alter the Republic's position internationally persuaded some in the States General that the time had come to fight fire with fire. If the English were going to try ruin the Netherlands, then why should the Dutch not realise the Commonwealth's fears, bring back the House of Orange, or recognise as the rightful King of Britain, Charles II? Furthermore, France could be solicited for aid and force, and the pressure this would put on the English Republic at home and in its colonies could be life-threatening to its very existence. There was a real sense among those that sympathised with the Orangist faction of the Republic that the war now had to be fought according to different principles. Not according to the principles of trade and money-making that the regions advocated, but of survival by any means, of taking the fight to the English and of erasing the lethargic and haphazard Dutch responses. Money could be obtained from contracts, from loans, from allies. It could be guaranteed by promises of favourable trade terms in the future, by IOUs, by letters of credit, like the English continued to issue. The war effort could be resurrected and the English expelled from the Dutch shores, chased to Dover and defeated with overwhelming force. The Dutch had forgotten what it meant to fight for survival, to fight like they had fought during the toughest stretches of the Eighty Years' War. Since then they had become soft and too in love with money, but if such setbacks did not signal the end of the Republic, it should represent the watershed of its rebirth. Unfortunately, such a reversal in fortunes was not so simple. The remaining Dutch fleet, some of which awaited reinforcement in the North Sea, more of which awaited rescue at the Bay of Biscay, and the final portion of which was hemmed in by the English blockade, was too weak even combined to properly challenge the English at sea. Merchant fleets awaited escorts in the Sound, the Channel, from the Indies, New Netherland, and elsewhere that simply could not be found, despite the loud, frankly clueless protests of the merchant lobby in the States General to their region friends. 
Trump was now expected to do the impossible with even less resources and sea power than before. Orangists that demanded the appointment of a captain general to lead the republic were shouted down by the regent classes. The growing Orangist party had recommended taking the fight to the English by sponsoring risings in Scotland and Ireland, by proclaiming Charles II King of Britain and by allying publicly with France against the Commonwealth. Yet, although these diplomatic moves would have forced England to tackle numerous problems at once, it would also have widened the war and provided a recipe for near-endless conflict. Furthermore, although France was in a state of unofficial war with England, it was engaged in a real war with Spain, and so the Dutch would have to, if they wished to solicit official French aid against England, declare themselves against the Spanish. This was something that the already economically depressed merchant class and the dominant region party across the provinces could not bring themselves to do. Although most prominent in Holland itself, the other provinces found it immensely difficult to separate the Republic's policy from Holland's policy. The other six provinces, some of whom contained parties in favour of returning the House of Orange to power, were unable to shift Holland's control over the States General or usurp the merchant central region class from their position atop the state's food chain. Such a change would only come with much bloodshed in 1672. Dutch representatives had been sent to negotiate an end to the war in spring 1653, buoyed with offers of an Anglo-Dutch defensive alliance against all enemies, mutual consultations between the two governments, arrangements for an intrinsical union as close as there was ever made between two sovereign states, and more but they remained confronted with the original offer of a union that had been presented by the embassy of St. John and Strickland all the way back in May 1651. And since this remained unacceptable to the Dutch, it seemed as though the diplomatic impasse would continue as the military situation for the Netherlands grew yet more desperate. When Trump attempted to mobilise what remained of Dutch naval power on the 8th of August 1653, the final act of the war began. The English fleet approached in an unbroken line and remained in formation even as it consumed the Dutch vessels it came across. Undersized Dutch ships withered helplessly under sustained cannon fire and panic ensued when the only man capable of holding it all together, Admiral Martin Tromp, was killed. His death was a catastrophe for the Republic, yet when the smoke finally cleared, the Dutch States General was somehow able to claim a victory of sorts due to the absence after the battle of the English. The English blockade of the Netherlands had ended, and the English had withdrawn to repair their ships at home. They did rightfully believe, though, that they had dealt a shattering blow to the Dutch, one from which they never recovered from in the remainder of the war. This, the third heavy defeat in less than six months, confirmed to some in the provinces that the war could not be won and other avenues must be sought. The danger now, from the English perspective and that of Oliver Cromwell, was that the Dutch would be pushed into appointing William III, still an infant, as Captain General of the Netherlands and Stadtholder of Holland, and that the Dutch state would become more radical, and that such developments would signal the beginning of years of protracted war. Cromwell may have overestimated the influence of the Orangist faction, but his estimation of the desperation of the Dutch was mostly correct. Although the English were unable to maintain a full blockade, they returned periodically over the coming months to keep the pressure on. Admiral Tromp's successor as leader of the Dutch fleet 
was his previous replacement in the years before, Wit de Vith. And he recognised that to risk battle at close quarters with the English gunships was effectively suicidal. Yet, he had been informed by the States General that no ships were ready to counter the English supremacy. No materials existed to construct new ships, no capital existed to pay for such construction or materials, and what money did remain was barely able to fund the crews aboard what ships remained. It was a thoroughly bleak situation, to the extent that the Dutch faced the prospect of not sending their skeleton fleet out at all in 1654, despite the fact that the English held sway over all that the Dutch held dear. The Dutch nonetheless had to do something, so a distant relative of the House of Orange, Vassenaar van Obdam, who was also a career soldier, was appointed general at sea and tasked with escorting another troubled convoy from Norway. The States General hoped that such an appointment would appease the Orange's party, who had engaged in furious denunciations of the regions at home and abroad. As a number of ships awaited what appeared more and more like a suicide mission, political quarrels led to another Dutch disaster. Fearing that the fleet would remain in port over winter and refuse to escort any more convoys, Obdam's fleet was prevented from sheltering from an awful storm that destroyed a third of its force. Suffering similar casualties now to the weather that they had once suffered to the enemy, the disaster provoked outrage from the Orange's party who embarked on a program of denunciation which only further divided the Dutch Republic. The event convinced Johan de Witt, the Grand Pensionary of Holland and, in time, the de facto Prime Minister of the Netherlands, that the war was irretrievably lost. The situation appeared impossible for de Witt, who, as a member of the region class, wished to ensure the continuation of what was known as the true freedom, i.e. the period of Dutch history without a stadtholder in place. De Witt and others like him feared that if the war progressed then the Orange Party would force a change in government, and that civil turmoil would end the period of true freedom and bring about the restoration of the House of Orange, the pledging of allegiance to Charles II, the formation of an offensive alliance with France, and the outbreak of war with Spain, complete with all the extremism and radicalism that this would provoke from England. Interestingly, and this is where the olive branch appears, as much as De Witt feared such an outcome, so too did Oliver Cromwell. Ascertaining that the most important issue to the Dutch was trade, and thus their own economic independence, Cromwell could appreciate their reasons for not adhering to the Commonwealth's demands for a union. Yet, as that Commonwealth's protector, he had to demand a certain level of security from the Dutch. When it was understood that De Witt wished with all his might to avoid appointing the House of Orange back to its pre-1650 position, a deal for the sake of English security could be struck. In exchange for peace, the States of Holland could swear to never appoint William III, at that stage three years old, to the position of that of his forefathers as Stadtholder of Holland. What Cromwell feared was the revival of Charles II's fortunes, and he believed that only the House of Orange, co-opting its old family ties with the exiled Stuarts, could bring about such a revival. What brought such a deal to Cromwell's attention was the passing of a law by Johann de Witt, as a response to the demands of the Orange's party to forge an alliance with Charles II, that no foreign potentate could enter the province of Holland. De Witt made sure such a law was known to the English. Although no other province save Holland had passed the law, it was sufficiently suggestive to Cromwell for him to enter the next phase of negotiations and force his radical diplomats negotiating with the Dutch in London 
to calm down a tad. Anti-Dutch rhetoric had ballooned in popularity as the English successes increased. The reasons for launching the war had seemed legitimate because not only of the apparent cunning of the Dutch, but also due to the rampant economic advantages that could be gleaned from replacing the Dutch as the foremost economic power in the world by way of force. With the dissolution of the Rump Parliament in April 1653, the motives of the English war effort seemed to shift notably. Whereas the Rump had kept economic interests close to heart, Cromwell and his allies were horrified at the prospect of their religious and political twin on the continent getting stamped out, especially by their forces. Maintaining the need for security as paramount, Cromwell allowed the Dutch defeat to progress only to a point before stepping in. He realised from the outset that such demands for a union would never be acceptable to the free-minded Dutch, but as he attempted to impose his authority on the bare-bones parliament, the rump's far smaller and Cromwell-approved successor, the impossible English demands remained in place. It was only after he had properly established himself in a secure position, so about roughly early 1654, that Cromwell felt able to dramatically alter the course of negotiations. Considering the ideological and political factors far more than his predecessors, and not holding as close to heart the economic motives that had encouraged the rump to perpetrate and continue the war, Cromwell became a man that the desperate Dutch could deal with, especially when it became clear that the Dutch were willing to trade away the succession of their favourite Orange dynasty for the sake of peace. Cromwell was by no means adverse to the concept of a union. In fact, in his meetings with the Dutch rep in August 1653, Cromwell seemed to have swayed back in favour of a union, only in almost the same breath to claim that the Commonwealth was in desperate need of guaranteed security after the war. Cromwell conceded that the concerns of trade and freedom were the paramount aims of the Dutch, but he continued to maintain the need, on the other hand, for the English peace of mind that would only come with guarantees enshrined in law. The Dutch representative in question cleverly highlighted that Holland's fellow provincial allies in the Republic, such as Zeeland, had much less to lose than Holland proper, and so a continuation of the war and its transformation to a separate saga of the English Civil War would not altogether trouble these other provinces. A picture for Cromwell was thus painted by this Dutch rep of Holland's reasonableness being overwhelmed by the radicalism of the other six provinces. This was designed, of course, to unnerve Cromwell, since a never-ending war with a doubtful conclusion was the last thing he or anyone wanted. He wanted to ally with the Dutch, not alienate and radicalise them. Because Holland had been that province with the most to lose, it had always appealed for peace in the States-General and abroad with the most fervour. Holland was by no means totally confident of its ability to command the complete acceptance of a conditional peace with England. Although a union became increasingly abandoned as a term of the appearing peace treaty, the Netherlands were still deeply divided as to how the war should be fought and, as J.R. Jones explains, viewed. Quote, the Orange's case was most fully stated by the states of Gelderland, a poor landward province. The Holland regions were blamed for all the disasters of the war. All negotiations should be terminated as they were bound to be a trap. All those in the English government were dissemblers and hypocrites whose promises could never be relied on. Everyone must recognise that the war was as ideological as the Eighty Years' War against Spain had been. It was being waged against the pernicious maxims of the government which the Commonwealth embodied. Therefore, the Stuart cause must be publicly embraced. 
a formula for a fight to the bitter end. End quote. Never-ending war was not high on the list of priorities for either DeWitt or Cromwell, though, despite how jarringly divided this extract reveals the seven provinces to be. Rather than attempt to co-opt the support of the remaining six provinces then, Holland simply elected to steam ahead with its peace plan in 1654 with the now increasingly eager Cromwell. Cromwell too had to deal with extremist elements in his faction, some of whom we met already with their unrelenting demands for an unrealistic union, but others still believed in the premise that a total war against the Dutch was necessary. Whatever consequences this created, the war would ensure the downfall of the material evils of the Republic. The Dutch, as Babylon, should be removed from Europe, but not replaced by England. The end of the Dutch worldliness was their aim, not the transplanting of it from one portion of Europe to another, even if this would have benefited their state materially. Thus we see the critical difference between this faction under Cromwell and the previous mercantilist party within the Rome Parliament that had helped originally to sustain the war. Oliver Cromwell was a political pragmatist, but he was also under the sway of some serious ideological baggage, as has been historically documented. Although recognising the reality of the situation with the Dutch, he was nonetheless in the process of planning for a wider war against Spain while its attentions were held by France, and this war was motivated as much by his desire to spread the Protestant religion as it was to seize Spanish foreign markets. As spring 1654 approached, the States of Holland pushed through a measure in the States General which called for the approval of all officials of the Netherlands to approve the peace plan. This peace plan that was in the final stages of its creation was to be the salvation of the by now hysterical Holland merchants who petitioned tirelessly for an end to the war and a resumption of their businesses. Whether the Republic realised it or not, all of its components depended on such a resumption and when Cromwell approved the draft of the peace treaty in early March 1654, Holland jumped at the opportunity to sign it. Its terms made no mention of the House of Orange, but required compensation for loss of trade in light of the Danish decision to intern many English ships, a guarantee of reparations for colonial conflict in India, and the pledge not to support any rebels of either side. Although the Dutch were unable to secure the repeal of the 1651 Navigation Act, its contingent articles had been mostly abandoned or would sag from disuse under the new ideological pulse of the Protectorate. The Dutch would no longer have to hire English ships to trade in English ports. The Channel was no longer considered official English sovereign territory, and though Dutch ships would have to salute their English counterparts, this was a small pill to swallow when one considers, as the now elated Dutch did, that the status quo antebellum had effectively been returned. Why had Cromwell acted so leniently? Some historians suspect that a combination of factors, his recognition that the Dutch would collapse into Orangist rule if the war continued, the heavy price that such a war had inflicted upon the English state, the pragmatic belief that the Dutch would never agree to a union, and the removal of the merchant elements of the rump that had demanded a harsher economic punishment, were to blame. However, as tensions began to mount with Spain almost as soon as the Dutch delegation left for home in early April 1654, a more significant reason came to light. Cromwell had got what he wanted just in time. A separate, a secret treaty, a personal guarantee, 
was given from the states of Holland that William III, and he was mentioned by name, would never acquire the office of Stadtholder of the province, and thus would never be in a position to command the revival of the royalist cause that Cromwell so feared. Such a guarantee of security that the other provinces would come to ratify, although it was only the province of Holland that Cromwell took real notice of in this case, meant that the Commonwealth would be secure from its rebellious elements just in time for the next chapter in its conflict-laden history to begin. A six-year-long war with Spain. Contrary to the war with the Dutch, though, England would not achieve such stunning victories. And by the time the Commonwealth collapsed at the feet of Charles II in 1660, heavily in debt and dying for peace, it had squandered all the advantages it had won in the war with the Dutch. Conversely, the Dutch, having learnt their lessons of warfare, had modernised their battle fleet and concentrated the power of the Republic into the hands of the Grand Pensionary of Holland, Johann de Witt. De Witt's control of the Republic for the next two decades ensured its recovery, to the extent that even by 1660 the recovery was notable and the war a horrible memory, with the Dutch now preoccupied by events in the Baltic that we'll encounter soon enough. The Dutch had, by the skin of their teeth, survived. Next time, the States General sought to ensure it would neither be caught so unaware, nor caught out so alone in the diplomatic wilderness. The subsequent years of Dutch history would prove these lessons learned, just in time, for a young king, in a turbulent regime, to come of age. The war did teach lessons. For the English, the war appeared as the perfect little war, the war that took advantage of Dutch weakness and provided England with the opportunity to take over the economic world that the Dutch owned. In the successive wars against the Dutch, and especially in the Second War a decade from now, the war party would nostalgically claim that only Cromwell had halted England's usurpation of the Dutch in world trade, and that a war could easily be won against the United Provinces again. Because Cromwell could be vilified by the new royalist regime, he could also be presented as the only factor that saved the Dutch before. Without him, Prince James and his conspirators believed, nothing could save the Dutch in a second war from annihilation, and nothing could prevent England from establishing itself atop the economic food chain. All it took, so the belief would go on the eve of war in 1665, was war again against the Dutch. Looking at the pounding that the Dutch Republic received in this war, it's not hard to see how the later English governments drew such conclusions. But then, by 1665, the Dutch were a different animal to the one London had come so close to taming before. For Johann de Witt and the region class of wealthy Hollanders that would effectively rule the Republic for the next two decades, the war against England had been a monumentally costly disaster. Only good political fortune, it seemed, had saved the Republic from civil collapse, regime change, the end of true freedom, and endless war. The desperation of his citizens was something DeWitt would not forget. He was determined to prepare his Republic for defensive action in future. The construction of warships thus began in earnest. Tactics were changed, lessons ingrained, with the result that the Dutch Republic of the 1660s understood how to fight a naval war against its foes. Such critical lessons certainly shocked the fledgling but still massively expanding Dutch Republic, 
but in the long run it also saved it. The most severe tests of all were to come. And perhaps the most interesting period of European history was about to begin. The Dutch, contrary to what the Rump had intended when it ensured the continuation of the First Anglo-Dutch War, would have a bigger hand in shaping the last portion of this century than perhaps any European power. As the longest reigning monarch in European history would seek to cement his legacy. In this episode, we have concluded the story of the First Anglo-Dutch War. In successive episodes, we'll be examining the other wars throughout the period that follow it. Some you may be familiar with, and others you may not, but I hope you'll stick with When Diplomacy Fails for all your early modern European history needs. Because I can assure you as someone who is in no way biased, that the history and the story effectively writes itself in the years to come. So thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market glimpse back in time. Remember that When Diplomacy Fails is a fan-supported and listener-supported podcast, so please be fit. Check out the blog, send me an email, review us favorably on iTunes, subscribe, download, find us on Facebook, and like the page to keep updated, as well as, of course, using word of mouth by telling your mates, your dog, your kids, your enemies, everyone, all about what we do here, and how excited Zach, and hopefully you guys get when diplomacy fails. Thanks. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.